Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Do you guys know who Stella Liebeck is? Stella Liebeck. If you do, don't say to your neighbor, I'll, I'll tell you in just a minute, but uh, think about that. Do you know who Stella Liebeck is? When I say her name, you may not recognize the name, but when I tell you her story, I think most of you will know her. This is her uh, nice, sweet looking uh, grandma there. I'm sure she's really nice. She also looks like she will light you up if you talk back, right? Um, so that's how grandmas look. And uh, it's very sweet. In 1992, I was 10 years old and she was 79 years old at the time. She went to get a cup of coffee and she spilt it on herself. She ended up spending eight days in the hospital, had skin grafts and third degree burns, pretty severe burns. And all of the burns were right here in this area as a 79 year old. And uh, so pretty traumatic experience. She is the one who very famously sued uh, McDonald's because the coffee was too hot and uh, caused quite a scene, caused quite controversy across our nation. Now, how many of you by show of hands remember who Stella Liebeck is? There you go, like nearly everybody. And you've definitely been affected by her, even if you never heard the story or her story uh, for a number of reasons. She wanted $20,000. That's what she originally asked from McDonald's just to cover her hospital bills. And yet the jury during the case was so upset they were so enraged that they awarded her $3 million, which is the equivalent, this is what really will kind of blow your mind, which is the equivalent of two days of coffee sales uh, for McDonald's. $3 million in two days, just coffee, all right? So that'll kind of uh, amaze you in that way. Even though I was 10 years old, I remember the case making headlines. I remember it being on the news that my parents were watching. I remember all the, the adults at church and others were talking about her. I remember the ridicule, how they mocked her, how they accused her of a frivolous lawsuit. People would say things like, well, of course, coffee is supposed to be hot. Well, I like my coffee hot, you know? You heard people say that, and that's true. Coffee is supposed to be hot, however, it is not supposed to be as hot as McDonald's was serving it. It was at a level in which it would instantly cause third degree burns. McDonald's, McDonald's knew it. They had already had over 700 cases. Many of them they, they settled financially because the coffee was causing burns to people. And uh, yet they chose to continue to serve the coffee at that degree or uh, keep the coffee at that degree because in the long run they would make more money. They did not have to make new coffee when it got cold. And so they were t intentionally serving the coffee at a dangerous level to make more money. Also, I would hear people say things like, well, if you're driving with your coffee and you try to open up your coffee and put your sugar and stuff in there, then that's your fault. That's your own clumsiness and that sort of stuff. However, the reality is that uh, a family member drove her to McDonald's that day. They were parked as she tried to prepare her coffee and she was in the passenger seat. So the car was not moving and um, it just, 
It was just one of those accidents that spilled all over her and caused those degrees. And so this is, the, because of her case, this is the reason that every cup of coffee that you ever buy now, uh, I would say every cup, I, I don't know that, this is a cup of coffee um, that I bought this week. And of course it has on there the warning, caution, contents are hot. That is because of her and her lawsuit and every cup of coffee you ever get, that you need a warning now that the coffee may be uh, tremendously hot. And people can argue, and obviously we can have different opinions about exactly who is liable for uh, the situation, for the deal. You may say McDonald's is to blame as the jury and the judge did, or uh, you may say that she and her own clumsiness is to blame. It's not my position now to stand here and to debate the merits of the case. The reality is that there is a lot of facts in the case that have been misunderstood. And as a result, a 79-year-old grandmother was mistreated, clearly, from my perspective, just because of misunderstandings. In fact, I would say on some level, this is sort of a tragic story. There was no desire to know or to fully understand what was happening, only a rush to misunderstand. And then as a result, to mistreat her. And we don't need to look at legal annals. We don't need to look through history or even media and movies to find stories or illustrations about somebody being mistreated because they were misunderstood, do we? In a room like this, with this many people, I'm sure that all of you have been in a situation in which you were misunderstood and therefore you were mistreated. Maybe you were fired from a job or cut from a team because of some misunderstanding. Maybe you lost a friend or two. Maybe there was a circumstance in which you no longer speak to that person or now there is a division in your family or in your friend group because of a misunderstanding. Maybe you walked away from the circumstances. You pulled yourself out of that scenario in those relationships or that job or that school or whatever it is because you just didn't want to get tangled up in the misunderstanding or in the pain of all of it. Would it shock you? Would it shock you to hear that Jesus was mistreated because he was misunderstood? So far we've been reading John and so far all he's done is just friended people who didn't have friends. Uh, he healed a guy who couldn't walk. He was really nice to this lady that nobody else was being nice to, or at least that's the theory. He's a kind guy, a nice person, and yet he is misunderstood and he is mistreated. And as I read this story in John chapter seven, as I read the story, I am not shocked at all that he was misunderstood. Obviously he becomes mistreated. It was, what was more surprising to me is the familiarity with that feeling how much I can relate to the story. And my suspicion is that all of us can. So as we start this morning and not to be cheesy or anything, I just want to tell you, caution, the contents of this story, they could sting, they could burn a little bit, but I do think that they are gonna be helpful for us as we try to you know, kind of navigate through it and apply it to our own lives. Let's pray together and then we will, uh, We'll spend a lot of time on the context and then we'll try to apply it just a little bit. God, thank you so much for your words. God, we know that you often teach us through mountaintop experiences in which things are going well. You bless us. You give us things that, that we desire, things that we do not deserve. And that's good. We learn from those circumstances. But God, we also know 
that very often you teach us, mature us, make us more like yourself in negative circumstances, in isolating and lonely situations. And so God, I pray for those who walk in here today feeling alone, feeling isolated, maybe burdened with sadness, that you would be encouraging to them and, and teach them. And for those who are not in those positions currently, God, we thank you for that. We praise you for those moments. But hopefully we would all learn, whether it's personal now or something that we watch you go through, we would all learn. We'd grow more like you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen. So the, the, the text is John chapter 7, 1 through 24. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open that up. If you don't have a Bible, um, download the Bible app. It's called the YouVersion Bible app, and you can get all the different translations in that. That one's a great one. I'm using what's called the Christian Standard Bible when you, when you choose a, a, a translation there. I'm using the Christian Standard. And the reason I want you to kind of have it and look at it is, is I'm going to summarize a lot of the context of what's going on. And normally, I would just say this in like maybe two sentences. That would, that would be it. I would just say, this is what was happening. But, but the context context here this morning is, is, is uh, educational. It, it's enlightening. It really matters to us to see what's going on. In John chapter 7, 1 through 9, there's this occasion, this instance in which the brothers are ridiculing Jesus, his biological brothers. These are uh, his siblings um, from Mary, all right? So she had other children with Joseph after uh, Jesus, and these guys are, are giving Jesus a hard time. And the context of it, as you read through there real quickly, you can see that they're talking about what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, that's the way that I understood it growing up, Feast of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles, or in some occasions it was such a popular occasion, such a popular feast that they just called it the feast, all right? And so they had lots of feasts, but this was the feast. And it was one of three traveling feasts in which the Jews were expected to travel to Jerusalem and there they would celebrate. All of the commentaries that I read mentioned that this particular feast was a joyful occasion. It happens right at the end of the harvest season. So they're celebrating a harvest gifted by God. It's also joyful because of the nature of the celebration. Particularly, it was celebrating that God provided for them while they were wandering around in the wilderness. That's what they were remembering. But the way they did it, listen to this, it's kind of fun. All of the families would travel to Jerusalem and then they would construct booths or um, what we would call a hut, right? They would take branches and kind of um, build a little hut and the family would camp in that uh, for the week. Now, some of you say, I thought you said it sounded fun. Okay, just go with me, all right? It's like, it's like tent camping. And imagine that you and your whole family travel to another city and there are thousands and thousands of people camping there. Uh, your cousins are there, your, your, your friends that moved away are there, um, some people who are, who are always there and y'all build your huts by each other. You don't see them all year long except for at the feast, all right? That sounds fun to me. And we know that in the New Testament, Jesus and his family traveled. We know that they traveled for some of this because you remember when he was what, like, uh, like a preteen? They left him in Jerusalem. They, they forgot, the whole family traveled there and they forgot that he was there. And, we, and, and the assumption, the reason that they thought they left him or the reason that they misplaced him was because uh, the rest of the family was there, 
uh, they thought he was with like aunt so-and-so, you know, and she's super, um, you know, not responsible. And, and she lost Jesus, you know, not Mary, aunt so-and-so. That's what was going on in the circus. So we know that Jesus grew up doing these traveling uh, festivals with his family. And so all of that really paints this picture. I think it's the backdrop that we can't forget that it was a joyful, happy, like a ton of memories. Remember that time the hut fell down? Remember that time it rained really hard the whole time we were there and we were all just miserable or, or we learned to play um, soccer or whatever, I don't know, uh, chicken foot. Uh, you know, that sort of stuff. That kind of stuff is going on. And, and Jesus is in the middle of that backdrop right there in one through nine, his brothers, his family is ridiculing him. They're making fun of him and they say, hey, Hey, we're going to go down to the feast. Um, you know, one of them, you know, elbows the other one and says, why don't you go down there and show them some of your like magic tricks? And then everybody will like think you're the Messiah, the, the Christ. If we go do that, you know, that'll be cool, Jesus. And this ridiculing them, it says in verse five, particularly the, at that time, they did not believe him. His brothers didn't believe him. They're making fun of him. So it's supposed to be this joyful holiday season and his brothers are making fun of him. Uh, so it's, it's got to hurt. It, it, it's got to stink. These people that are close to him, the people that he loves, the people that he's close to, uh, they end up ridiculing him during this very happy moment. In verse 10, it says that he does eventually go down there about halfway through the festival. So, you know, this is like Wednesday and he shows up down there, but it says that he doesn't go down there publicly. He goes down instead of secretly in secrecy. Now this has a lot to do with God's timing for his life when he's going to preach and those sort of stuff. But there's also this really um, sort of dark cloud that's hanging over the situation. Not only is Jesus walking around secretly, and it's not like he's like being a double agent, he's just not drawing attention to himself. And some of that has to do with in verses one and two, John lets us know that the Jews were trying to kill Jesus. All right, so his brothers are making fun of him. The religious leaders are trying to kill him. And in Jesus's response to the brothers, Jesus says in verse seven, they hate me. Now, I think if we could pause right there and feel those words, if we could just sit in it for a minute, I think we could all relate to that, right? You ever counseled like your daughter or your son and through their tears, they're upset about something and they say, they hate me, you know? And you say, as you should say, they, no, they don't, they don't hate you, right? That's, that's, our, that's our immediate response. Nobody hates you. You're perfect. You're beautiful. I love you, you know? And so nobody hates you or maybe you have felt that way. You're talking to a friend or a spouse, you're going through some sort of circumstances like that and you either say it out loud or you feel it within your own heart. They hate me, right? It's a hard place to sit. It's a hard place to stand in where you feel like the they hate you. Now, none of us would look at Jesus and say, no, nah, Jesus, you don't, you don't understand. You know, he's the Messiah. So if he says they hate him, they hate him. There's this large group of people that hate him there's a subset of those people that want to kill him during the holiday season while his brothers are making fun of him. That's gotta be a really sorry place to stand, right? It's gotta be a place that we have all felt before, a place that's, but it makes me wonder why. I can understand one or two people not liking Jesus, right? I mean, I say that, but doesn't that sound crazy? Who wouldn't like Jesus? Jesus is awesome. Um, but you know, he says things that are confusing. He says things, he does things that are not the norm. And so I can understand a few people not liking him. I can understand other people in jealousy or in bitterness wanting to kill him, but this is widespread. This is something that is all over the place. Why is such a large group of people mistreating Jesus? Well, 
I think it has something to do with what's going on in 12 through 13. It says, and there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. And some were saying, he's a good man. Well, I think he's fine. So someone would say, and others were saying, no, listen, listen, on the contrary, he's deceiving people. You're deceived. You think he's good. He's deceiving people. And still nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. This is the reason I think that so many people were mistreating and misunderstanding Jesus. This word right here, they were murmuring. The word murmuring can be translated a number of different ways. Your text, if you're using a different translation, it might say muttering, it might say gossip. My favorite one is the NIV 1984 edition. All right. Isn't that sound weird when we talk about Bibles that way? Um, it's 84, it's classic, it's a good year. Um, the NIV, NIV 1984 version translates that word as widespread whispering. So if your translation doesn't say that right there, you ought to write that down. That's a good one. There's widespread whispering happening about Jesus. Jesus is the object of their gossip. One commentator uh, said that this was behind the scenes talk, private meetings, closed door little conversations as they gathered around a little matzah and coffee. They had Jesus for lunch, that sort of stuff. They were talking about Jesus. And the sad thing is that none of them were talking to him. They're just talking about him. Who in this room has not been the object of widespread whispering? It's sad to me because Jesus is alive. They could have easily just walked up to Jesus and said, hey, when you said the thing about bread, I didn't understand, like, what were you talking about? Like, you said, literally, we got to eat the bread. And then you said, you're the bread. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Could you help us kind of put this stuff together? And then Jesus, you know, teaches them for a few minutes. And then they could have said, yeah, still not getting it. You're going to have to like break this down in another level. They could have done that. Or they could have just respected him as a human being and walked up to him and asked him these questions. But they don't. They don't, they never do, right? There's just this widespread whispering. And one of the frustrations, as you well know, is that the they in the conversation, you never get to know who the they are, right? It's just they, people talking, people in secret saying what they wanna say, right? And I'm judging by some of y'all's faces that you do feel this, you just don't wanna be too public about accepting that they, I have felt this way before, right? And it's frustrating. It's really troubling. And here's what happens in my experience and what I've observed. Almost always, when there's a lot of widespread whispering going on, two things almost always happen. The first one you can see in verse 20. In verse 20, it says that you, they yell at Jesus. They say, you have a demon. You have a demon. One of the things that happens in widespread whispering is that the people who don't really know end up framing the actions. So you have a demon, you're demonic, you're evil, you're out of your mind. What they end up doing is saying that this is, the, this is, the, this is what he's actually up to, right? And so then there's this bias that builds into the community. And so then everything he does from that point of view is, well, it's demonic, it's evil. So somebody whispers to somebody who tells somebody else who gets on the phone and has, you know, a little uh, meeting with so-and-so and they all sit down and they decide, they spread this idea. Well, you know what? The first one says this, well, maybe it's demonic. I don't know. And then the next one says, you know what I heard? I heard that it was demonic. And then the next person says, you know, I guarantee you it's demonic, that sort of stuff. 
That's what happens. That's what happens to Jesus. What happened to you? That's what happened to me. People making their assumptions, they're talking, they're framing the conversation. And then from that point on, Jesus can walk on water, save a child from death, let somebody um, live again, give somebody bread, provide water for somebody, and they're all going to go, see, told you, it's a demon. They framed it. And now how does, he, how does he get out of that? He doesn't get out of that. That's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is they assume motives. You can see that in verse 12. It's right up here on the board. It says, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving people. Deceiving, that's such a huge word. It's not that he's lying. It's not that they're saying, no, on the contrary, he's, he's confused about our religion. He's confused about the way things should go. And so I think that, I think at best, you know, you can hear somebody saying, I think at best, maybe he just doesn't really understand what he's saying. Or somebody could say, no, I think he's lying. He knows it's different, but he's lying. He knows it's different. They jump all the way to assuming that his motives are deceiving, meaning that he is intentionally lying to trick people in a bad way. Jesus is trying to hurt people. And the reality is we can see Jesus's motives because we read the whole story from our point of view, but they couldn't and they didn't know, but they're assuming, literally telling other people he is deceiving people right? And these could be good, fine Southern Christians, you know, but they were still sharing. So what happens through this widespread whispering, this always happens, is you end up framing out the person's actions and assuming their motives. And in both cases, you don't know. They don't know. They don't know that about you. You don't know about them. All of this behind the scenes talking is how he's misunderstood. It leads to his mistreatment. And so you have here this young man, Jesus, helping the hurting, feeding the lonely, or friending the lonely, feeding the hungry and teaching them the true ways of God. And in this joyous holiday season, he is being mistreated and misunderstood. It's gotta be one of the most lonely, isolating feelings, right? When you went through it, it was, it hurt, right? It's lonely, it's isolating. Up there in that early part, in one through nine, his brothers are talking to him and they imply that his friends, the disciples, are already down in Jerusalem, which means Jesus is all by himself. He ain't got nobody at this point. And so, like I said earlier, I don't normally spend this much time sort of building out the structure of what's happening in the story. But I think it's important for us to to spend a little bit of time there because I think it's instructive, I think it's helpful. The first thing that I think it does for us, it encourages us to know that Jesus feels what we're going through. He knows what we're going through, but he also feels what we're going through. You ever been in a situation where you're feeling pretty um, bad about the circumstance, people are mistreating you and, and listen to me, I know that there are situations in which you, you misunderstand. You think people are mistreating you or they're talking about you and there's not. I'm not talking about that. There are a lot of times where you were right. You didn't do anything wrong and they are, they are, they're out for you, right? I'm talking about those circumstances. And anybody ever step into that? Maybe it's a small group leader, pastor, a mama or somebody kind of like that steps into and, and says, no, uh, listen, Jesus felt what you're feeling. You know, he died on the cross. He died on the cross. Anybody? then that's good, that's true. It's just, it feels so dramatic, right? So if I'm ever getting martyred by the Romans for my faith, then I know exactly what to do. I do, all right? And it also feels a little bit disconnected 
because what I'm going through at work or the social circle or this relationship or my family or something feels a little bit weird to compare that to the crucifixion, all right? And so there's a little bit of a disconnect. And so the crucifixion is a thing. And um, of course it's a thing. It's a thing we wrap our whole faith around. But this, I have felt this. You have felt this. People talking. There's a need to breathe song. It says all the devil been talking, right? And what it, under, what it underlines is that Jesus knows the facts. Like if you just stop right there, Jesus knows the facts. This part we all get. Jesus knows. He knows what you said. He knows what you actually said. Not what they're saying that you said, but what you actually said and how you meant it. He knows all that. He knows the timing. He knows all the details. We get that part. Jesus knows that part. But this is the encouraging part to me. And he knows the feeling. He knows exactly what you're going through and he knows exactly what it feels like. Isn't that strangely comforting? You'd really wish neither of you didn't, but you can't avoid that. The other reason why I think it's important to look at the context is that it makes me hope that something Jesus did in this story is gonna be instructive to me. So the next time that this is happening to me, the next time that it's happening to you, maybe I can learn to do whatever it is that Jesus does because it's gonna happen. And so when it happens, what ought I to do? Four things. And I'll go through them as quickly as I can. I gotta go through them really fast. Um, 14 through 15 says, when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then Jews were amazed and they, were, they started to make fun of him. But here's the part, began to teach, right? They be, he began to teach. I think there's a little bit of a, a bravado in that. Jesus is being ridiculed, misunderstood, purposefully people are twisting what he says. There's a big part of me that wants to withdraw in that moment. If you're not gonna listen to what I say, if you're gonna take everything that I say and twist it around, I'm just not gonna say anything, right? It's part of me that wants to do that. But Jesus doesn't do that, he steps into it. And he says, listen, I, I was sent to teach. I was sent to preach. Jesus does what he's called to do, let him talk. That's encouraging to me. If you're doing what God called you to do, then let them talk. This requires a little bit of homework. You're gonna to need to know what it is that you're called to do. And, I, and just real quickly, what I would say is if you're kind of questioning that, what am I called to do? What am I put here for? Why does God have me in this dorm room and in this university and, and, and at this address and in this, um, uh, this, uh, this uh, business park and all this kind of stuff? What, is he, what does God be doing in this company and this sort of stuff? Then you need to look at your giftings, what you're uniquely gifted at, right? What other people have affirmed in your life. They say, listen, you are the most encouraging person or you're a great speaker, or you really bring clarity to this conversation, that sort of stuff. You look at the giftings that other people have affirmed, like the elders and your parents, that sort of stuff, they affirmed. You look at the need, what needs to be done around here, and do you have the opportunity to do it? Like you could really have strong opinions about something that's happening in Russia and the Ukraine, but you don't, you don't really have like an opportunity to fix that, right? So you're probably not called to fix that right now, but something's going on around you. That's what you're called to do. And when you do, when you are doing what God called you to do, then you can expect that people are gonna misunderstand and they're gonna mistreat you for it. But you do what God called you to do and let them talk. That's what Jesus does. He shows up and he starts teaching. 
Then it says, um, this language here goes then, the one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. So when, when, when he stood up and he started talking, because all the crowds were around him, they're like, hey, teach. The, the Pharisees, the Jews, the people were like, you're not allowed to be, what are you doing teaching? You're not credentialed. You didn't go to an accredited university. I don't even know where you get your degree from, you know? That's what they, that's what they started saying. How's he? He's not unlearned. He's unlearned. That's what they say. And, and Jesus says, he stands up and says, I'm not teaching my own stuff, y'all. I'm, ta- I'm, I'm teaching what God said to teach. This is for his glory, not my own glory. Which is really surprising because if there was anybody in the history of humanity who could make up his own stuff for his own glory, it would be Jesus, right? If Jesus stood up there and said, I got a brand new thing. This has never been taught before. Uh, my father never even clued you in on this, this is brand new, then we would all still need to go, listen to that, he's Jesus. And if he said, I'm teaching all of this for my own glory, we would say, that's, that's fine by me. Name above all names, seated at the right hand of the Father, he can have all the glory he wants. But Jesus doesn't act that way, nor should we. It's for the glory of the Father, and it is what the Father sent him to do. So like if you were to really kind of zone in on this, what Jesus is saying is, I'm gonna do what God sent me to do for God's glory. And so if you're doing what you're called to do and not expecting any glory from it, but you're trying to give glory to God, then you let him whisper, let him talk. Now that doesn't mean you won't benefit from it. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a relationship or something like that. You'll benefit from it, but that's not the point. The point is God's glory. So when you do what God wants you to do, he picks up the tab. When you say what he wants you to say, he will silence the critics. When you walk where he wants you to walk, he will guide you. When you confront darkness, he shines the light. And when you help the hurting, he heals. Last week, we talked about a guy that was healed. Jesus said, pick up your mat. He picks up the mat. The religious leaders walk in there and say, hey, we made up a rule a long time ago. You're not supposed to be picking up a mat. Who told you to pick up that mat? And he goes, ah, Dude told me to stand up. He healed me, told me to pick up my mat. Wouldn't you? It's that same sort of attitude. People all the time. That's not the way we want it to go. That's not the way I like it. Your opinion has inconvenienced my sensitive um, emotions, right? So they start talking. They go around and start talking. And you just need to have the confidence. However you say it, you say it in your own words. Don't say things the way that I say things, right? That'll get you in trouble. You say things in your own words. But at least if you say it in your own mind, I'm doing what God called me to do for God's glory, then that's, let him talk. Then in uh, verse 19 through 23, Jesus talks like Jesus. Jesus says, didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who's trying to kill you? Listen, they didn't know the leaders were trying to kill him. So that, that part. I performed one work and you are all amazed. Jesus answered, this is why Moses gave you uh, circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Listen, I love Jesus with everything in me, right? And sometimes I read the Bible and go, Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about. Is that anybody else that way? Like he's being confronted on his teaching and he just goes on a rant about circumcision. I'm telling you, if you're in class or um, on the field or if you are at work or whatever and somebody's jumping on your case about something and you go into a rant about circumcision, I promise it will derail the conversation. (laughs) It is at least a strategy. Oh yeah, you want want to talk about Moses' circumcision? We can do that all day, all day. 
That would, that would work. But that's not what he's doing. What he actually is doing is, see in verse 15, is it? When they're like, you're not trained. He starts to play a game that the educated people play. And what they would do is they would go and pick two laws, two Old Testament laws that would come up in daily life. Like for instance, the Sabbath, every seven days you're supposed to rest. Cease your normal activities, rest completely. Or there's the law of the circumcision. Male children on their eighth day are to be circumcised. And so the question, the, the, the game, the rules to the game would say, well, what happens if the male child's eighth day is the seventh day of the week? Well, which, which law do you follow on that one? Yeah? Huh? That's the game that they would play. And he essentially brings up that game to say, and all of you agree that you would circumcise. That's the heavier, more weighty law. That's the one that the priest should go ahead and fulfill. That's what Jesus is arguing there. And he says, I agree with you. Everybody agrees with you. Now, I'm sure not everybody. I'm sure the male child could wait one more day, but the everybody, nearly everybody agrees, right? Nearly everybody agrees. And Jesus says, so then if you would circumcise a guy on the Sabbath, why is it that you got so mad when I healed a guy on the Sabbath? And that doesn't make sense. He, he plays this game and it was more than that. It was like a philosophical debate, but he plays this game and he reveals not only that he knows the law, he knows these things, his education is supreme, but also that we should keep the rules, but that people matter. Do you understand what I'm saying there? He's like, yeah, you should totally be Sabbath. And you read the rest of the stuff Jesus says about the Sabbath. He says, Sabbath was made for man. You should keep the rules but people matter. The law matters, but people matter. And this is true within our religion. So if you have some sort of like religious custom, something that you do, something within your church or something like that, that is chewing up other people, is ripping them apart, then change the rule. You made up the rule, so change the rule. Man, this applies in other areas of our life as well. In like, you know, civil law when it comes to the conversation of reproduction and abortion, when it comes to border security, when it comes to these sort of situations in which laws matter, they matter. We ought to be involved in that. I am for outlawing the killing of the unborn child. I am for that. And I make no apologies about that. But we ought to be as much concerned about those who have made that decision because people matter as well. And the unborn child matters. And once they're born, they matter. And don't hear me say, I sometimes hear liberal um, arguments that say that Christians only care about the unborn child. Absolute ridiculousness. No other group of people has done more um, for adoption and the care of those kinds of things. It's absolutely ridiculous, but it should be ridiculous because it is consistent that we care about the law and that we care about people. And at the end, when it comes to the United States law, people matter more. People matter. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's arguing essentially what I would say if I was gonna sum it up in the way that I say things. If you are doing what God sent you to do for God's glory and the good of other people, then let them talk. Let them whisper. They can whisper all they want. It hurts. It feels like betrayal 
but let him talk. There's one last thing that he says there in verse 24. Stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to the righteous. This appearance is like, stop judging by the way you think it is, by the way it appears to you. This happens a lot with widespread whispering, right? People get together and let's say there's two people talking about some other person. Neither person was in the room. Neither person was there when so-and-so did what they did or said what they said. Neither of those people at their little hangout time was there when you actually made the decision that you had to make, right? But oh man, they can judge based on appearances. They know exactly what it is that you said, exactly what it is that you meant and why you said it. You ever heard that? You ever been in those sort of circumstances? You ever heard somebody saying something about you and you're like, why are they even involved? They weren't even there and that's not what I said. But that's what widespread whispering is. Jesus says, stop, stop judging by the way you think it appears and judge according to righteous judgment. Now, what would be righteous judgment? That's a judgment that knows all those things. Knows the heart, knows what was said, when it was said, what was done and why it was done. And then makes judgment. This last Wednesday night, we began a midweek Bible study in which there are 80 theologians gathered together in the fellowship hall. And it's many of the people that are sitting out in the room right here. And I'm telling you this, if you haven't yet signed up and you wanna sign up Wednesday nights, you can still sign up because you too are a theologian and we would love for you to come and theologize with us. One of the theologies that we discussed this last week was the incommunicable attribute of God called his eternality, all right? And why that's such a blessing to us is that God is outside of time. So when you're going through what you're going through, he sees it and he sees all of it. And he sees what had led up to that circumstance clearly and perfectly. He sees how it's gonna resolve clearly and perfectly. Outside of time, our good, good father makes judgments that are righteous. If you are doing what God called you to do and you are doing it for his glory, the good of others, God is your judge. Let him talk, let him whisper. This is really good news. It's helpful to us to be encouraged by the fact that God knows what you are going through and that he knows what you feel. And so if you walked in here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, listen, this is one of the reasons I would encourage you to follow Jesus, to trust him and to believe in him and to walk with him. He knows perfectly what you are going through and how it feels. And he came, like he said, to seek and to save those who are lost. And so chase after him, follow him. If you are a Christian, you have followed Jesus, know this, that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean they're gonna stop talking. They talked about our hero, they're gonna talk about you. And if you're following what God called you to do, they're not going to understand everything. So take heart in the reality that he knows the facts and he knows the feelings. When I was a teenager, young teenager, my little youth group went from East Texas to Flagstaff, Arizona. We did a mission project out there and we served this whole week doing, um, you know, like uh, evangelism things and training other people. It was really pivotal in my life all of the summers of my youth years, I went on mission trips. And so it's one of the reasons why I would encourage you, if you are 
uh, a teenager or a college student, go on mission trips. Go and do those. If you're a parent of one of those, make them do it, all right? It's good for them, all right? You make them eat vegetables, make them go share the gospel with other people. You should make them eat vegetables. Um, so anyways, I went on one of those to Flagstaff. And for the fun day and these mission trips, you'll do like, you know, six days of work and one day of fun. And we went to the Grand Canyon, all right? It's real close by there. And we did a bunch of things. And this is a particularly challenging thing for me because I am so afraid of heights. And as a teenager, it was even worse, right? Just very afraid of heights. And even though I tell myself that canyons are not high, they're deep. And so when you're standing there, it's real low, not real high. And so I still tell myself that it just doesn't work. And one of the things we looked into was um, those, those mule tours. Have y'all ever heard of these or seen these? You ride a mule down the edge of the canyon and then you ride it up another and you get to see a lot of stuff that way. Anybody ever seen this? Anybody ever done this? All right. If you haven't done this, there are times when you're on the ledge in which the width of the mule from your perspective looks bigger than the ledge on which they are standing. And on this side, you just have rock, unforgiving, God-ordained rock. And on that side, you have dismemberment and pain for the rest of your life whether it's real short or extended, right? It's gonna hurt. And yet you're riding on this mule who's just going along, you know? And the leader will look at me or looked at me, looked at everybody, I wasn't the only one, but looked at all of us and said, listen, I've done this a million times. I've led these a million times. And that mule has done this a million times. You're fine. To which you wanna respond, I don't care if you cut that rock. I am not fine. This doesn't feel comforting to me that the, you want me to trust the donkey and, and you, I don't even know you. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you a Christian? You know, that sort of thing. It, it rises up that that's not comforting. But what I would argue is this very clearly, it's more than comforting, it's safe. That mule, has walked that path a million times by himself, has carried a million people, and now he's carrying you. Jesus went through this life by himself. Power of the Holy Spirit walked through this life with all the exact feelings you feel, all the pain, and he has carried millions through this life. And now he is carrying you. It's more than comforting. You're safe. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.